We talked to Greg Pallast about a lot of things. You can read all of his reporting if you go to gregpallast.com. He's an investigative journalist that looks into a lot of the issues of the day. He is an absolute expert when it comes to voter suppression and the efforts states are making to restrict who can vote and when they can vote. Uh, but he also has a familiarity with what is going on in Ukraine and Russia, particularly their connection with Western Europe when it comes to oil and gas. And he joins us now, of course. Hello, Greg. Welcome back. How are you? Pretty good. Too bad I can't get those Paula Poundstone tickets. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm a big mutual fan. She supports the Palace Investigative Fund, so I'm a big fan. Uh, I, I'm a fan, too. I think next month... Uh, when it gets closer to when she's actually coming into town, I think we're actually going to try to talk to her here on the radio. So I will Don't tell her that it, Greg Pallast says hello. <laughs> yes. Okay. So uh, that's the happy part. Now, now the rest. Now, now the rest. Up the world. Yeah. Vladimir Putin, uh, I don't know, maybe you read about this earlier, but I just read about it this morning where he said he is he is rethinking, Greg, he is rethinking the oil and gas relationships that Russia has with Western Europe. I'm not quite sure what that means. I guess uh, it's some kind of uh, seriously veiled threat. Um, yeah, he's but- going to cut off. He's going to cut off the the oil. Well, what is he going to do? Is Russia going to drink the oil now? Uh, yeah. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think one thing we have to do. Look, every you know it, it's horrible, but everything, even Ukraine, comes comes down to oil, because the only thing that is keeping um, those tanks rolling for Putin, and the only thing that gave him a sense of impunity, is that he he is selling. Uh, picking up nearly $100 million a day from oil sales and gas sales into Europe. And frankly, we can put an end to this. Much, you know, the idea that he has, has us by the light bulbs, no, no, no. Um, uh, as I've written at gregpals.com, is the state of Venezuela is exporting basically no oil. They could export enough oil and gas in liquefied form that would 100% replace Russian oil in, um, in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, but replace all the gas from not just Nord Stream 1, but Nord Stream 2. And that, if, if you cut off, if you say, we're not taking your gas, Mr. Putin, all his threats... All his power, all his windfall from this invasion comes to a halt. And that's okay, but but in do. in you know uh, looking at the history here, part of the reason why the world was shunning the oil and gas from Venezuela was because of the human rights abuses there. So do we start? Well, wait, wait, when the we other say way? people people cutting it, that was Donald Trump. It wasn't Obama. It wasn't. It, it was Donald Trump, which establish an, an embargo and a, basically a siege of Venezuela. Venezuela has been our ally forever. I knew Hugo Chavez, the president, well. He got along very well, by the way, with George Bush Sr. He got along very well with, um, with Bill Clinton. Um, and uh, he was elected the president. You know, so instead what we're saying is Donald Trump decided, well, we're not going to, we're not going to take oil from Venezuela, 
our long-term ally and take oil from it, which has an elected government, whether we like the elected government or not, uh, that's not the point. The Venezuelans have elected their government. Instead, we're, we're taking our oil from those wonderful democracies, uh, Saudi Arabia mm. and uh, Putin and Russia and, Afghan- and um, Kazakhstan, the United Arab Emirates. I mean, when we're talking about getting oil from from OPEC and from Saudi Arabia, this is MBS, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, master monster of Saudi Arabia who hacked up the Washington Post reporter, Adnan Khashoggi columnist, hacked him up into little pieces, has refused to add one barrel of oil despite Biden unseemly on his hands and knees begging OPEC to release more oil. So why are we... Why are we um, taking our oil from dictators? And that's what Saudis are. They're, forget the term royals. The royals just means um, dictators in bathrobes. Mm-hmm. That's what we mean by Saudi oil. So do we take the dictators in bathrobes? Do we take Putin, the great Democrat, his oil? Or do we take oil from Venezuela? Those are the choices. There, there aren't, there's not like another flavor out there. You got those three flavors, Saudi Arabia, Russia, or Venezuela. I'll take Venezuela. I read oh a week or two ago that there were talks ongoing between our government and the government of Venezuela, but I didn't, after reading that little blurb, I read nothing more about it. Do you have any inside scoop there? Yes. Well, I wouldn't call it a scoop, but um, you could see that um, Blinken had sent down a team to talk to Venezuela. Chevron Oil, not one of my favorite companies, by the way. You know, they tried to get me fired from BBC. But nevertheless, Chevron Oil has told the Biden administration that they can produce 800,000 barrels a day, almost a million barrels a day of oil from Venezuela within three months. Now, Venezuela has some pretty dirty, heavy oil, which... We don't want anyone to have that stuff. It's not quite as bad as the tar sands. Oh, by the way, that's the other thing that the right wing wants is um, open up the XL pipeline and take more tar sands from Canada. That's great. But um, so Blinken sent down a team. Chevron was ready to roll, uh, but it got blocked by the right wing. Obviously, the Trump bites and the crazy right. But also we have, you know, the um, the senators from Cuba, um, uh, um, Bob Menendez and um, um, Wasserman Schultz, Debbie Wasserman Schultz out of Florida, who are basically representing, you know, the right wing Cuban emigre um, factions. And we are allowing these right wingers who are big Trump supporters, to veto to veto oil that would save Ukraine. And by the way, save Venezuela. Why are we, you know, we have an embargo on Venezuela. Again, not on Saudi Arabia, not on Russia. And people well, can't get medicine. They can't get food. This is not American. This is, most Americans have no idea that we've been running basically a war against Venezuela. And that's just insane. But let's step back from this for a second, Greg. I mean, mm-hmm. if if Germany decided that um, they didn't want to keep paying Russia for oil and gas, if Germany wanted to get their oil and gas from Venezuela, what would it matter what the Republicans think here in this country? Why can't they do well, that no on one, their own? No one's going to act. No one's going to act in opposition to the U.S. State Department. Um, you know, at, at right at this moment. And that's one of the things I'm very, uh, 
that. I'm very Even though the Biden and State yeah, Department supports the British, this? The British were, yeah, the British were, were actually bad on this, too, as was Merkel. Um, Britain um, asked the Venezuelan government to allow them to take over the oil fields of Venezuela run by French Total. And the Venezuelan government said, no, we're going to keep it for our own oil company. Well, that was, frankly, that was kind of foolish on the part of President Maduro, who I know. He's not the brightest bulb in the socket, and i got to tell you right now. Uh, I know this guy. But he's their elected official. But, they, but because Britain refused to turn over its oil fields to France, so then Britain now has cut off um, Venezuela. And not only that, but took $10 billion of gold that was being held in uh, the Bank of England for Venezuela. By the way, people thought Hugo Chavez was crazy when he removed his gold from Fort Knox. It's a good thing he did. Otherwise, they would never have that gold right now. We have recognized as president of Venezuela a white guy who lives in Washington, D.C., a guy named Guaido, who doesn't even live in Venezuela, didn't even run for president, not like he was cheated out of his election. This is not like Putin who, you remember the last, uh, look at the last couple of elections from uh, Putin. Number uh, first, he was running against Boris Nemtsov. Nemtsov ends up with four bullets in the back of the head, shot right in front of the Kremlin, where the cameras were turned off, supposedly while they were being, quote, repaired. That's how Putin, that's the democracy that we're taking our oil and gas from. The the other one, his other opponent, uh, Viktor Navalny, was poisoned by the FSB, the KGB's um, evil um, successor. And that's pretty bad when you're more evil than the KGB. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the FSB poisoned Navalny. Now he's facing uh, more than 15 years in prison in Siberia. So this is the democracy. And we may not think much of Venezuela's democracy, but, was, but if our choice is Putin's democracy, yeah. I don't know. Well, I was explaining to the listeners, though, uh, in Angela Merkel's defense, there was a belief not all that long ago, Greg, that the more business we could do with Russia, the more Russia would feel tied economically to the rest of the world and essentially would behave better, that it would it would check Putin's expansionist desires because he was too economically interconnected with the rest of the world. That's an old one. We've heard that chestnut from Walmart, which had 700 factories in China and uh, basically prison factories. And so the idea that we always get this from big court, from the oil companies and from uh, obviously uh, the oil guzzlers like Merkel uh, and from the Walmarts. If you just, oh, if we have business with China, that will make them more freedom loving. They'll become freedom loving capitalists. If we have business with uh, Russia, that will make them freedom-loving, uh, a freedom-loving nation. That's not how it works. So always when, when someone has a profit motive to tell you this will bring democracy, no, it will bring Walmart profits, it will bring Exxon profits. British Petroleum had 30% of its reserves in Russia. So we know why they wanted that oil moving, and it wasn't to make Russia democratic. And, they, and, when, it didn't, and when Russia did not become democratic, it wasn't until the British government basically forced British Petroleum to say that they will sell their interests Have they done it. It's a con that somehow uh, capitalism automatically brings freedom. Freedom brings freedom. 
Well, I don't know that what I got the sense from Angela Merkel was not that she thought that somehow buying oil and gas from Russia was going to bring about a change in the government, but that it was going to give Putin one less reason to piss off basically the rest of the world. Um, Because you just just circled back around to it. If Europe is in a place to say, you know what, take your oil and gas, Russia, and stuff it. If that happens, um, it isn't just going to be the sanctions that bring that country to the knees. I mean, that's, that's basically well, like you were just saying, their big yeah, check. I mean, well, as you were saying, so who's, so who's threatening whom? You just said today that Putin is threatening to cut off West Germany, and so far well, that hasn't worked, has it? They, they are, right now, they're sending $100 million a day to Putin. They're saying, here, if you want a war, here's a windfall, so that the price of oil has gone from 60 bucks a barrel to $108 a barrel, and, uh, of course, gas rises with the price of oil. Nord Stream is still, Nord Stream 1 is still moving 1.9 trillion uh, cubic feet of gas uh, into Germany from Russia. And so Putin's laughing. In fact, he's saying, well, I might cut you off, though I know he won't. Um, but he's because he's making too much money from this. So this is we're basically oil has become a profit center, has become a, a war profiteering center. Our the oil. Look at the oil company stocks shooting through the roof. Look at gas company stocks shooting through the roof. I think that we've got a problem here, and Bernie Sanders is right about this. We have a massive windfall in the petroleum industry. And as long as that happens, we have, in effect, a uh, corporate fifth column that's undercutting us. It's not that Putin is threatening us. I mean, he's got the the whip hand here because he can cut us off, but I don't think he will. But certainly we're not... At this moment, we're not threatening him. The only source of alternative uh, uh, energy, we have to be realistic, is only Venezuela. And they are not our enemy. They have attacked no one. They've invaded no one. They actually have something called elections without shooting the opposition. Um, Whether we like it or not, we don't like their choices. But still, if the choice is Putin or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, and we're begging Saudi Arabia to produce more, and they won't. That's our great ally. That's our great ally. I don't see it. I think this is our chance to reestablish a long allegiance and alliance that we've had with Venezuela, and it's time to do it. It's time to not continue Trump's foreign policy. It is a Trump policy to try to overthrow the government of Venezuela, isolate it, sabotage it, refuse oil from Venezuela. Um, There's a reason why Trump is not president and and his love of Putin is showing here. And I have no doubt that cutting off Venezuela was in part to pleasure Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> I want to talk to you more about Putin. I'm speaking with Greg Palast. You can read his reporting at gregpalast.com. He is also the author of the book, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We're going to be back with more after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan 
Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Greg Pallast. We've talked to him before. He is an expert on the voter suppression laws that are being moved through various state legislators, legislatures, but he uh, has a, has a, a, a wide range of topics that his investigative reporting focuses on. You can get more of his stuff at gregpalast.com. Greg, we were talking about Vladimir Putin. Uh, yeah. Just within the last week, uh, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, I might cut off the gas and oil to Western Europe. He has also said through his one of his um, leaders, by the way, Finland and Sweden, if you join NATO, we just might have to move some nukes over by you. Uh, he has also apparently this Monday, one of his uh, minions sent to the White House a letter saying, you know, don't send any more military equipment to Ukraine because Vladimir Putin is really, really, really going to be unhappy if you do that. Well, the, you know, Joe Biden announced $800 million more for Ukraine. Finland and Sweden have not called off their scheduled discussions of whether or not the countries should join NATO. And frankly, nobody seems to be, you know, shivering and quaking over his threats to cut off the oil and gas, which, you know, ordinarily you look at a war and you'd say, well, that's great. You know, this guy is going to realize he's got to go to the bargaining table because he's losing this war. Do you think that's what's going through Vladimir Putin's mind? No. Vladimir Putin, let's go how he got there. Vladimir Putin, and there's this connection to Chicago, by the way. Uh, Vladimir Putin was chosen by a, um, an oligarch, a billionaire named Igor Berezovsky, who's now dead, as are the, all the uh, billionaires who helped Putin get to office. And he was chosen as what they called the Pinochet or some people call it Pinochet, general, the general who was the dictator who overthrew the elected government of Chile. And um, he was picked as a Pinochet, that is a vicious dictator who would be both hyper-capitalist and hyper-militaristic. Um, for those in Chicago who are too young to know who Pinochet was, he was a general who was backed by Henry Kissinger to overthrow the elected government of uh, Chile, which he did. He murdered 3,000 people, his favorite method being uh, throwing um, progressives out of helicopters. In fact, in Portland, uh, um, in, in those counter-demonstrations against Black Lives Matter by the right-wing groups, they were wearing T-shirts saying, free helicopter rides for liberals, referring back to this killer mm-hmm. Pinochet. And literally, the billionaires of Russia got together. They called it Project Succession. And they told Yeltsin, we will steal the next election for you in uh, 1998. We'll steal the election for you, which they did. They call it administrative process, not vote suppression there. We'll steal the election under the condition that you, because you're drunk and you're dying anyway, so that you turn it over to a Pinochet, to a dictator. And so they actually met with Pinochet, the dictator, while he was under indictment for murder in Chile. They put him on national TV to describe a new leader that would be just like him, a militarist, bloodthirsty, doesn't care how many people die. And they said, we've got a guy who's the judo champ of Petersburg. You've never heard of him. He had less than a half percent name recognition when he became prime minister of Russia, Vlad Putin. And then um, 
Um, they told Yeltsin, now you resign to make Putin president. People didn't know who this guy was, except that he, he was just the Russian Pinochet, basically a killer. He doesn't care how many Russians die. And that's bad news for us because he does not. He's not elected. It's these are rigged elections, truly rigged elections. And his dictatorship, he doesn't have to worry about the people. And, and in 2000, to give you an idea how bloodthirsty this guy is. He made his name. He, he actually was popular in 2000, very popular 20 years ago in Russia, because when he was named prime minister, he rolled tanks into the, into the Russian city of Grozny, which is uh, Chechen Muslims live there, and just leveled that city as he's doing to Mariupol. 50,000 civilians died. 50,000 and... Maybe the Russians didn't care about these Muslim Chechens, but they lost 14,000 Russian soldiers in this mass slaughter of civilians, and Putin was considered a great hero. So his experience is, you want to kill 10,000, 20,000 Russian soldiers? I'll just call them martyrs, and I'll just build my own reputation. They're fighting in his in his. Uh, sick lingo that they're fighting nazis so he doesn't care how many russians die this is a very this is a guy who literally is just as cold-blooded as you can imagine even though george bush said i know george bush said he looked into his eyes and he saw a good man a good man he could trust i'm sorry george you got that one wrong yeah i think that i think we're all we're all thinking that george uh, got that one wrong. Do yeah. you think, do you think, you know, there's these reports, oh shoot, um, we have to, we're gonna, we have like, like a minute left before we have to take a break for news at the top of the hour. But when we come back, um, I've, you know, I've got a, I recently got a book of, uh, of a long, lengthy interview and speeches that Putin made when he first came to power, trying to see if there is something, you know, that gives me some insight. I've been, I've been reading about two different Putins. There's the Putin that some believe is just the brilliant long-term strategist. And whenever the war takes a different turn, those people are saying, oh, that was his real intention. You know, everything else was just a feint. And now he's getting what he really wants. And then I read other people who say that the man is isolated. The man, uh, by all accounts from the people who are interacting with him, seems to be perhaps suffering some kind of impairment, some kind of neurological problems that, it, you know, that it may not be making sense a lot of the time. And then the, the other people are saying they know that it, there's the brilliant strategist and then there's the crazy man who has lost touch with reality and is more the likely than not to just send nukes to Ukraine because why not? When we come back, Greg, I want you mm -hmm. to take a look at both of those appraisals of Vladimir Putin and tell me what you think. We'll be back right after news at the top of the hour. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. 
I'm joined by Greg Pallast. We have spoken to him uh, many times in the past, a lot of times about investigations that he is doing. You can read all about them at gregpallast.com. He's also author of the book, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We have been talking about what's going on in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin. And right before we broke for news at the top of the hour, I wanted him to weigh in on the two seemingly leading theories about Vladimir Putin. One, he's an absolute brilliant strategist, and this war is unfolding exactly how he planned it. And the other one, that he is unhinged, he is a crazy man, and he is capable of any horrible atrocity that you can think of. Where do you think the truth is, Greg? Well, it can be both, in that he's a a kind of spider-like strategist, I mean, he is a champion. He really is a champion judo. Um, he, he was Petersburg uh, judo champion. Uh, so, in other words, he is a strategist, and he knows how to fight. the The problem is, is that he is also a new czar. Uh, once again, uncontrolled power, and over time, he has become more isolated. Clearly. Uh, you know, he's called sometimes President Botox, but I think in, in Russia, but, he, you know, I, it looks like uh, steroids are the issue. Um, very dangerous because he has completely, like Stalin, he has completely unlimited power at this moment in Russia, and he does not have to face an electorate. So I'm very, very concerned that the normal constraints on a leader aren't there. And he is definitely, according to people like Condoleezza Rice, you know, does who's fluent, very fluent in Russia and has known Putin for a long time, that um, uh, something's wrong. Something's deeply wrong with the man, and that's dangerous for all of us. But she hasn't, you know, in her previous life when in government, she had discussions with a man, she met with a man. Uh, presumably that has not happened for a while I saw a lot of world leaders, Macron and uh, Scholz in Germany, talking about, I don't know that this guy's got all of his sandwiches uh, in his little picnic basket. (laughs) But are we, how how reliable is that? Or is that just, we see the man doing horrific things, so we think he must be crazy or must have a problem? Well, no, he has a, well, let's, let's, Let's remember, in fact, I, I've been speaking uh, two things that I recommend. Number one is Ben Judah has written, J-U-D-A-H has written an extraordinary biography of Putin called Fragile Empire. And I recommend it to everyone to really know where this guy comes from and how he operates. Um, the, the other is uh, I've been following, I've been having uh, Larissa Alexandrovna, Alexandrovna, excuse me, my Russian isn't too good. Uh, her Russian is great, um, and she's been uh, sending me what's been on Facebook in Russia, what people are saying. And it's pretty bad. You won't be too happy about it. Things like um, from women in Russia that the women of Ukraine ought to be raped, that the people of, of the Ukraine, if they don't recognize that they are part of Russia, that um, that they should be eliminated literally that you know the terms extermination are used over and over again because they're nazis and there's no cure for nazis except to exterminate them that means all civilians i mean it's very very grim and this is what's being sold in russia so remember he's playing even though again he jails and murders his political opponents even a dictator cannot lose 
his population. He has to throw them a bone. And it's, you know, and he did this before when he invaded Georgia. This is a dead repetition of the Georgia invasion, if you remember, back in um, um, 2012, no, 2008, excuse me, and um, when he invaded Georgia. He took Abkhazia. He took South Ossetia. These were uh, Russian ethnic uh, areas of Georgia. When he got no resistance, he started moving towards Tbilisi, the capital. And then at that time, I will say Rice and uh, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, uh, she called Putin and said, we are sending in, we're not going to fight you. American troops will not fight Russian troops, but we are sending supplies on American planes with American military to the capital. And you understand what that means. 14 minutes after that call, Russian troops were withdrawn back to the Russian ethnic areas. Nevertheless, Putin, despite that withdrawal, he pushed as far as he could. Uh, he was considered a great hero in Russia, despite thousands of Russian soldiers dead, uh, because he was able to um, take back Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Now, if he comes back with Donetsk, Crimea, and Luhansk in his pocket, those Russian ethnic areas... I think he will still be considered a great hero. He'll he'll flip to that side. That's what I'm hoping. I hate to say it. That's about the only, the least bloody solution to this conflict. You know, uh, so what people have section. been speculating is that he wants, hopefully by May Day, May 9th, he wants to at the very least have... Uh, a clear victory in the Donbass region, ideally not only the Donbass region, but a little strip of, of land uh, to the south connecting him down to Crimea, and that maybe right. then he could say, look at me, look what I've done, I'm the victor, now we can you know, bring this conflict to an end. Do you think that is a likely scenario? Well, that's I actually, in fact, I, I'm ashamed to say that like many people, including the top experts I spoke to, we all had an agree, uh, thought once he got the uh, once he got uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, which he did get and Crimea. And once he secured those with his troops that he wouldn't roll towards Kiev. Why would he you know, why would he take that chance and kill all those, you know, uh, Russians? But he did. So I'm I'm a bit always afraid to project what I think he will do, what he'll be satisfied with. But if you go by the Georgia example, when he got punched in the face in Georgia, uh, he pulled back, declared a victory, and he was considered a great hero. That's also, if you remember that that the picture of him after he shot that tiger, him with the tiger, uh-huh. that was right after he pulled back in Georgia. He distracted the public with killing the well actually he didn't kill the tiger he hit it with a tranquilizer but the the you know the tough guy you know bringing the tiger to heel um so i'm what hoping is the punch in the face the that needs be. to happen here and or is there anybody who can deliver it yes the british government i will applaud uh, boris johnson for while everyone's saying the russians are going to invade and he said so too at least he sent lethal weapons if it weren't for the end law uh, anti-tank weapons sent by britain uh, i think that uh, russian tanks would be in kiev right now so lethal weaponry i hate to say it you know i, I know war is not the answer but maybe this week it is, which is we're going to have to send real weaponry to Ukraine and stop playing games. It's got to hurt, and he's got to pull back. And then it's going to be a tussle over, for example, when you talked about that extra strip of land, that's in Kherson, 
which is which would connect uh, Crimea to uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Don't worry about it. these things. All it is are just you know it's a strip of land that uh, goes along the, uh, the sea there. And um, but you know that should the people of Kherson or um, the second largest city in, in uh, Ukraine, Kharkiv, where I have by the way I have a, a member of our team in Kharkiv right now. Um, that's not. I'm not too happy about that. To be honest. Um, will they keep those areas? That's going to be brutal. And I'm just hoping that um, yeah, that Putin is what ready to declare a victory just by slicing off that bit. You said that you think that this time around the slap in the face he needs is to be coming up against quote unquote real weaponry. What what would what would that escalation look like? What is real weaponry in this context? Well, you know, Zelensky saved us. Remember when, when a guy named Donald Trump told him uh, that he wanted to open an investigation of, of the Bidens? He saved our democracy, not just Zelensky, not just Ukraine's. Um, we owe him. Americans owe him. And the first thing would be the, uh, the best anti-missile defensive system, which is the Patriot system, should be. We should uh, allow them and bring in the Patriot missiles. We also need to increase... Um, uh, our intelligence, and frankly, there has to be a threat to the Russian air bases just over the border. There has to be. He, Putin has to know that he will not just be punching, but he will get punched, and it's it's horrible. I mean, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a fanboy of war here, but uh, the war it's it's not a question of if we don't send weapons, we somehow end the war. That it's not something that Putin understands. He doesn't understand weakness. He understands yeah. strength, and I'm sorry that that's the way it is. The Moskva was, uh, by all accounts, sunk by two Ukrainian Neptune missiles. Is that going to be a, a partial, at least, punch in the face to Putin, or is that just going to make him mad? Well, I mean, it, no, I think it will back him up. It, both. I mean, he's crazy enough, but uh, the, uh, I mean, he's angry enough to try to push. Remember, he's in, he was in political trouble. Don't forget that that Russia, this is very important, Russia got 45% of its national budget. That's all its social programs, everything, from oil and oil royalties and, and gas royalties. And the price of gas had hit the floor during COVID. Russia was broke. Russia was bankrupt. This invasion, by bringing up the price of oil, has completely reversed the bankruptcy of the Russian state. And now they're making money off this war. So I'm very concerned. We have to, one, cut off that, his, uh, his ability to, to make money off the oil. But, um, yes, unless there's some lethal weaponry, which will slow them down. Now, those were Neptune missiles. Neptune missiles are made by Ukrainians. They're actually yeah. – uh, because, by the way, most – Soviet armaments were made in Ukraine until the, the until the um, breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, so I do think that while the Neptune missiles will help, they are created by Ukraine. They weren't given you, to Ukraine. Ukraine needs um, needs radar systems. Ukraine needs more intelligence from the U.S. I know we're worried that we don't want to be seen as giving allowing Ukraine the type of weaponry which will allow a counterattack across the border. But I think that that's, you know, the, the truth is Putin's moved across the border. He's erased the border. I think that um, we can't have him fighting one war and we're defending another war. We have to fight 
this war. We have to fight fascists. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I was one of those people. I still, in, in my family, we still laud the Lincoln Brigade, the, those Americans who went overseas to fight Franco and Hitler in the 30s. And I think we're back to that. We have to fight the new Franco, the new Hitler. And that's what he is. It really does. It really does seem that way. And I know that NATO doesn't want to put boots on the ground, which is why it seems to me the only alternative is to pour um, material. And if the weapons are more advanced than the Ukrainians are used to using, then train them, you know, train them on the weapons. I agree with you that this is this is a this needs to be a proxy war, because I think that um I think that what you've what you've just pointed out, you know, the Vladimir Putin is using a playbook he's used before and he's got to be stopped. Uh, Greg, we need to take a quick break. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He was backed off in Georgia. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. We're talking to Greg Palast. We'll be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious. And don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We're joined by Greg Palast, who has been an investigative reporter. He's worked for the BBC. He's got a book out, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We have been talking about Ukraine, and we have been talking about oil and natural gas. But there is another resource, Greg, that comes into play here, and that is wheat. That is grain. I saw some reports earlier today on CNN where they were speculating there are certain countries in Africa that are so heavily dependent on Ukrainian wheat that there may actually be famine conditions in the near future there. Talk about that resource. That's correct. correct. Ukraine is the uh, wheat, uh, is the breadbasket of Europe at it's a massive grain exporter, just like the U.S., but uh, Ukraine is, is key in Africa and in Western Europe. And uh, it, it's horrendous. In fact, what's horrible also is so much grain will be rotting in the fields, too, because they can't get it out and they can't harvest in these conditions. So, yes, and that's one of the reasons we're also, remember, we are globalized. And one of the reasons your price of food is going up is obviously the um, – uh, the price of energy, which is a big component in creating food. You know, even wheat, you, you have to use natural gas to dry it. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's leading to worldwide inflation, and it could lead to starvation as prices of food and availability rise. No, it's horrific. You mentioned that you have a friend in Russia who has been sending you some of the Facebook posts that echo something that I reported earlier this week, that there was a a lot of concern because the social media platforms in Russia were starting to really, really up the rhetoric about how these Ukrainians have to be basically wiped off the face of the earth. There are some reports 
uh, at least there were reports that one platform um, from the West was still getting through, and that was Telegram, because a lot of the major international platforms were blocked by Vladimir Putin, so the Russian people couldn't get information. It, as far as you know, is Telegram yes. still operating? And when somebody yes. like, as we saw a few weeks ago, when Arnold Schwarzenegger did that, I think it was 10-minute video, where he Beautiful. just told Please the people of Russia how much he loved them and how they were being lied to and how you know the people of Ukraine were fighting for their lives. Does that sort of thing, do you think, have an impact in Russia? Did it get to Russia? There's two worlds, according to Ben Judah, the great expert on this, and um, in Russia. There is Moscow, and then there's the rest of the country. In Moscow, people do uh, feel freer to have access to the Internet, etc. Telegram is still operating, but understand, people are being stopped to, uh, by um, FSB, which is the KGB successor, and, and other military, and being asked to turn over their cell phones. They look at your cell phone, and they see what you've been getting on Telegram. They see what you've been, um, what you've been um, uh, surfing and what news you're getting. And if you are on the wrong places, you are in serious trouble. So that's how bad it is. Um, they, you know, it's very difficult to take off Telegram, which is an encrypted um, uh, messaging system. But, um, you know, people are literally afraid to even access that information. But, of course, don't forget, it's, it's people believe Putin um, outside of Moscow. Um, Navalny, who is actually quite a nationalist, he has come out against, uh, from his prison cell in Siberia, has come out against the invasion of Ukraine. But there's also, I, I want to note that they're, that they're getting a lot of aid and comfort from the American ultra-right Putin. For example, uh. just, just today, I think it's today, Nick Fuentes, who is um, one of the instigators of the January 6th insurrection. Remember, he's facing questioning indictment. In fact, I think he's been indicted already with Ali Alexander. I think I've talked to you on this program about Ali Alexander, who was the founder of Stop the Steal. He's agreed to turn state's evidence for justice. But Steve, um, Nick Fuentes, who's a right-wing Christian nationalist uh, Right-wing watch calls him an anti-Semite, misogynist, certainly violently anti-gay white supremacist. But he is one of the people that instigated the January 6th riot. And he just got on RT in Russia to say that um, the special military operation, he even uses the, uh, the, the, the Russian propaganda term, uh, that basically it is the poor people of Russia who are suffering. So Russians may get the impression that uh, Trump's people, even if it's not Trump, that Trump's people and a big part of the American population are um, looking at Russia as victims and not as the aggressors here. This is a very dangerous thing. I, by the way, I'm not one of those people. I, I don't applaud taking RT off the air in America, which is what has happened. I'm not for censorship, but we should be aware of how this propaganda is being used, mostly in Russia. I'm very concerned that they look at the, that these Trumpsters as um, that somehow America is split. They don't understand that America is not split. We're, we're quite unified. Now, it's true that, the, that you know, most of the Republicans are soft-pedaling 
Um, but uh, still, um, I'm very concerned that there's still this Trumpite element, which is supporting Russia. How did the Republican Party become a party that embraces Russia? Because I've read the same stuff you do, that they'll get a mm-hmm. clip from Marjorie Taylor Greene or Cawthorn yep. Madison, and they'll replay them, you know, Cawthorn famously saying, you know, uh, Vladimir's, Vladimir Zelensky's a thug, and they do replay this stuff. But do, do you remember when the Republican Party, one of their big backbone uh, platforms was anti-Soviet Union, anti-Russia? Those commies, we got to keep them in check. We got to do nothing to help them. Those commies are bad. What happened? Good God. Well, I think that, that the, the government changed from, from a communist government to, an, to a violently anti-communist government. Putin is, is violently anti-communist. Remember, his number one opposition is Gennady Zuganyov, who is the head of the Communist Party. That's an, the number two party in, in, um, in Russia, right after um, United Russia, which is Putin's party. In fact, if you counted all the votes, it could be that actually the communists won the last election. Um, so, you know, the, the Americans here do see, you know, with the right wing here is very aware that the possible alternative to Putin is the communist party that they don't want. Um, but it's a cartoon communist party. It, it, it is a party of thugs, just like United Russia is called the party of crooks and thieves. The communist party is known as the party of the thugs. Uh, wonderful choices one has there, huh? Mm. But, the, but we can't go back to the Cold War thinking. Um, Putin is, is ultra-right, violently anti-communist. He doesn't want to be – he doesn't want to restore the Soviet Union. He wants to restore the Russian Empire, which is why he's more than willing to let Asiatic countries run off. Uh, like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and Kyrgyzstan, as long as they stay in the sphere of influence. But he cannot let Ukraine go because in his mind, and what he sold to the people of Russia, is the restoration of what's called the Kievan Rus Empire. This is from the year 860. We're going back like more than a thousand years now. And Putin, so Putin's taking his country back a thousand years and saying, our empire was founded in Kiev. That was the original capital, the Russian, the original Russian Empire. And, they, and Ukraine is Russia. And anyone who says doesn't agree to that is a Nazi. So he's mixing the glories mm-hmm. of World War II with, with, with this ancient, ancient, oh, more than thousand-year-old, uh, almost fantasy Russia, which I'm not sure it existed then. It certainly doesn't exist now. But it's very dangerous because he is really selling the idea that there is no na- – he even said there is no nation called Ukraine. That's ridiculous. Yes, he has. And, and so the Republicans Ugh. are still thinking you – know, even some of the people on the left are thinking uh, Russia is Soviet. It's not Soviet. In fact, Putin hates the Soviet because don't forget – believe it or not, don't forget Stalin actually did recognize Ukraine as a separate nation – it was part of the Soviet Socialist Republics, a confederation, but it was a separate nation. And Putin says he will never forgive Stalin for that. Greg, we've got to wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for spending part of your Friday with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here, Greg. Okay, and happy holiday. Happy Pesach. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Good night. Happy New Year. Bye. <laughs>